Do you realize the street value of this podcast? Growing up, I was a nerd. Um, honestly, I still am. But it was more acute then. I had braces and glasses. I liked Sherlock Holmes. I played the accordion, for God's sake. I also played baseball, hockey, and golf, but there are some things that your reputation simply can't shake. I never ran from my nerdiness, and maybe that worked against me early on. You see, in our formative years, student leadership positions are popularity contests, where fame, good looks, or athletic accomplishments are given top billing over ideas or our quirky selves, where we're rewarded for blending in rather than standing out. It made me think of that Apple commercial from 1997. You remember the one. It went, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. But the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. When misfits are marginalized, stepped on, left out, picked on, put down, what does that say about us? Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Feel free to listen to and follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes every other week. On the alternate weeks, you can listen to Storytime, a five-minute show featuring familiar names and events, but told from a much different perspective. It's an exercise in storytelling, which is an essential skill for every leader. And you can find that on Timeless and Timely through the link in our show notes. Take some time to 
poke around there and subscribe to the newsletter while you're at it. It captures my thoughts on human nature and leadership in our ever-changing world. And it provides you some of the topics that I use in my speeches and executive coaching services. If I can help you or your team, feel free to reach out at timeless at scottmonte.com. And one last thing, could you do us a favor as you listen? Please share this episode with people that you care about because your recommendation is really the highest praise that I could ask for. In this very nerdy episode, I geek out with the king of the nerds and consider leadership from an unlikely angle. Maybe you know him as Miles Dalby, Charles DeMar, Herbert Viola, Metatron, Principal Foster. More likely than not, you know him as Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. The actor Curtis Armstrong is known for his many roles in film and television where he often plays a nerd or a misfit, and convincingly so. An early mentor counseled him, Know your limits. You'll never play Lear. And being the realistic sort, Armstrong embraced that advice. His journey has taken him from a childhood in Detroit to the stage in New York, to screens in Hollywood, and most recently to voiceover work on microphones everywhere. But to know Curtis Armstrong is to understand that each of us is more than what the world sees or hears on the surface. Curtis is complex and kind, funny and fascinating, humble and human. He's also an author, a producer, an authority on Harry Nilsson, The Beatles, P.G. Woodhouse, Washington Irving, and Sherlock Holmes. He's a husband and father, and a world-class friend. In his book, Revenge of the Nerd, Armstrong writes, In Hollywood, history is written by the supporting players. And he's written a memoir and lived a life worth exploring and causing us to consider leadership lessons from nerds. Curtis Armstrong, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you very much, Scott. Pleasure. I can't tell you what a thrill this is because we don't get to talk all that often. And um, you know, we actually both uh, met for the first time, I think it was about 20 years ago. And I was like a giddy little fan because I had, uh, I, I had grown up with you in some ways. My adolescence had been spent watching uh, a lot of your films. Mm-hmm. And I approached you with kind of a fan mentality, but I think what's happened over the years is it's grown into a true friendship and, and it's one that I appreciate. Well, it's amazing because the first time that we met, as I recall, was at the Baker Street Irregulars uh, in New York at the players or the national arts um, club. Uh, And, uh, it's hard for me to believe that was 20 years ago, but I think you are right. Um, and uh, it was a shock to me that you came up to me because I assumed that people who were having no exposure to the Baker Street Irregular except, except, except through legend, basically, um, 
I assumed no one at the Baker Street Irregulars would know who I was. I thought that everybody at BSI would be thinking in this sort of living in this rarefied area of of Sherlockian uh, uh, books and writing and that kind of thing, and that they wouldn't have time for nerds. And the fact that not just you, but other people who were there thought, oh, it's it's him. It's that guy. And I'm going, oh, I, I was, I was so flustered by it. And it was great then to realize that I was accepted. Well, I mean, in spite of my, my uh, film career. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and if anything, it was uh, an example of nerd culture. Of, of, of oh, a gathering. Sure. It was, it's a social network, as it were. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, so uh, let, let's go back a few years and tell us about when it is that you first realized that you were a nerd. Uh, well, I didn't realize I was a nerd uh, at the time because, uh, I mean, I, I was always a nerd and always aware that I had... Um, nerd tendencies and tastes, um, but I never referred to them as nerds. Nerd, this predates the definition. So nerds, uh, that was, we had our own, you know, uh, derogatory names for people like me. Uh, And I won't even mention them now because we like to not necessarily think about that. And nerd has acquired uh, a kind of of gentle, accepting, all encompassing uh, uh, quality to it to the description, which is much better than the old ones used to be. Uh, but the love of the passionate love of books, of music, um, that sort of thing was with me very early on, and. Um, I was always happier in a book than I was in the real world. And sometimes that, that's still true. Um, And, uh, but of course everybody knows in those days, pre, pre social media, it was a question of finding other people like you. And you didn't have names for yourself like nerds. You just knew that you loved, you know, uh, monster movies or, uh, you know, chess or whatever, you know, the Beatles, whatever it was that you were really into, to name three that I was into, um, you did that with friends of yours, you know, like you were in the basement or in the garage or in the attic or, you know, somewhere where later on you would be playing Dungeons and Dragons in the same way. Um, so that was, that was, it was, I was aware that I was not the same as a lot of boys, especially my age. Um, but I didn't really have a word for it. I just knew that it was the way I was. Yeah. And I think you, you, you touched on something there about finding your people. I mean, mm. really, no matter what our interest is, whether it is uh, sports or uh, student government or right. Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it may happen to be, uh, geeky, nerdy or not, there are other people who yeah, absolutely the share these it's things. A, it's a community. Mm. It's a community of like-minded souls. 
and it can be, I love, you know, the fact that you bring up, it can be sports or student government. It's true. There were always people at school. I wasn't involved in either sports or student government, but there were kids who were. And for them, it was the same thing as, you know, for me, when I got involved in my first Sherlockian um, cyan group um, outside of school, uh, which was Susan Rice's uh, doing back in those days, or we're talking late 60s, early 70s. And that was, you know, I would see these other people in their own world. So the, you know, the, the, the typical thing is to say, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the jocks versus the nerds. That's, the, the, that's sort of the cheap way of looking at it. But the truth is, everybody had their community. And sometimes those communities were open to other communities and sometimes they weren't. But um, as long as you were able to find that community, you were doing well. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned one of the, one of the angles I want to go at with you um, from a couple of quotes from your early, your early years, you said, Susan Rice, who we both know or knew, yep. Um, sadly, she passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. He said, Susan was my first and in many ways most important nerd mentor. What did you mean by that? She, uh, I found out about Susan in, the, I started subscribing to the Baker Street Journal. And uh, in the back of the Baker Street Journal was the section about the science societies, what was going on with the science societies. And the first edition I got, I think. Um, had a description of the trifling monographs. So when you say science societies, just for our listeners, this means the local clubs that branched off of the national Baker exactly. Street Irregulars Sherlock Holmes organization. Yes. For, for the listeners, so BSI started in New York, but then there were in Detroit where I was living, there was the, the uh, Amateur Mendicant Society, which was almost as old as the original BSI in uh, New York, but then there were other groups that, that would, you know, the Greek interpreters in, in Lansing, I went to a couple of theirs, and younger, uh, more uh, recent groups of Sherlock Holmes fans. And Susan was a teacher uh, in Bloomfield Hills down the road from me. I mean, it was, I'm reading this in the Baker Street Journal, realizing that someone Susan Rice had created a Sherlock Holmes club specifically for people my age, high school, basically students. And she, they were mainly her students at her school. But when I read that, I got in touch with her. I still have the letters that she wrote me at the time. And uh, I started going up to Susan's for the, for the meetings and she invested me into the trifling monographs, the uh, the uh, polyphonic motets of Lassus was my uh, investiture, and um, it started me in the world of Sherlock Holmes. But what was significant in Susan's case is this was a woman not that much older than us who was at that time was still not allowed to be a Baker Street irregular or a trifling monograph, I mean, or a, a amateur mendicant society 
any of the the classic big none of the uh, of the Sherlock Holmes established Sherlock Holmes groups allowed women in them at that time. So I was learning about organized the, the organized Sherlock Holmes world from someone who was an outsider who was not allowed to be a part of it. This was hugely significant to me. And uh, so that's why it was the, she was the first person outside of school, uh, my drama teachers in middle school and high school came before her, but first person outside of school who showed me that there was a community that would accept me. And that's incredibly important. And I don't care whether you're talking about uh, high schoolers or someone who is new on a job. I mean, this is, this is really an example of leadership at work. And, and one of the things we wanted to explore together is can nerds be leaders? Uh, and and I, I, I mean, I think the easy answer is yes, but there's, there's a nuance to it. And I think you just hit on it with Susan. Um, and, and when she passed away, we did a remembrance on uh, a website that I, I run, and you contributed to it um, because you had some of those notes. You had a lot of great memories. And one of the, the summary points about Susan is she made misfits feel as if we had a rightful place at the table. Nerds, LGBTQ+, noobs, comic book collectors, awkward types. Not only did she collect people but she put them together and gave them a sense of belonging. That's exactly right. And I mean, I don't know that you can come up with a much better description of what a leader is. And Susan of all people would have described herself had the word been in currency at the time would have described herself as a nerd. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know about a lot of the people who were in the the trifling monographs where their lives took them. We're not, you know, we didn't stay friends. But for a critical period, the most awkward and difficult period that a lot of people live in their lives, and this was a, this was a coeducational group, that we had something to latch on to to get excited about. We would go see plays, we, you know, we would do scat, uh, skits, we would, you know, share books, or, you know, this kind of thing. It, it was, yeah, and it sort of led from there. We, you know, there was sort of a subgroup of the trifling monographs who were into Star Trek original series. I was part of that, too. So, you know, we were we had all of that, but none of that would have been possible without Susan recognizing the importance of introducing people, riding herd on us, and and guiding us in different ways, critically important. Yeah, and and um, I mean, I mean that that sounds like it's something that's stuck with you uh, for the, you know the rest of your life. Really, I mean, we were just talking before the recording about your collection and how you're mm -hmm. starting to uh, to to. Uh, sell it or, or to market it with booksellers and, and giving it another life for another generation. And, okay. and I think what I've seen of you and your interactions where, where we intersect is how great of an interest you take in the next generation coming up. 
Well, it was, it's an interesting thing. I haven't really put it together until you started to bring this up. The idea of nerd leadership, um, because a few years ago, as you know, uh, Robert Carradine and I were doing a, a TV series, which we executive produced called King of the Nerds. And uh, it, the idea for King of the Nerds was obviously playing on the roles that we played in, in Revenge of the Nerds back in 84. But what we, the idea of it was a competition reality show, which was a comedy competition reality show, which was, you know, coming into real vogue at the time. And um, to do it with young people who were part of that community, that larger community. But what was so interesting for me about it was how much it taught me about how the nerd community had expanded. Bobby and I were looked upon as being these leaders, as being these, you know, uh, sort of a couple of the patriarchs. Nerd founding of, fathers, I think. Uh, <laughs> nerd founding so. fathers, exactly. And that was how these people were sort of looking at us because as long as they'd been alive, they'd been aware of nerds and connecting us to it, you know, in some ways. But once we started going around and, you know, interviewing people for the show, and I started realizing the different areas in which they were nerds. Some of them, you know, were into Dungeons and Dragons. Some of them were into uh, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars, or, uh, you know, they had different passions and different, you know, interests that I didn't even have. I didn't even, in some cases, cosplay. I had never heard of what cause, I'd never heard the word because I'm of an age where all of that came after me. You know, when I was, when I would have been at a point where it would have been intriguing and I would have gotten involved with it. It was just a, a freak of birth that, you know, allowed me to do a movie in 1984, which a lot of people look upon as sort of the beginning of nerd culture, when in fact, I was already at that point 31 years old. So a lot of the stuff that came after, I missed until we did King of the Nerds. So those as leader, uh, one of the leaders of nerd culture, once that show started, I was being taught by them as much as they were being taught or more than they were being taught by me. You know, I think that is such an important element of leadership. Uh, yes. And 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 I just wrote about this uh, in, in the latest newsletter where we talked about underdogs. And in many ways, uh, nerds are the underdogs. I mean, it was it was written uh, you know, poetically in Revenge of the Nerds, the the the, the comeback kids, as it were, mm -hmm. coming from right. uh, being downtrodden, picked on, put down, left out, right. and one of the things, particularly in this particular underdog story, we we highlighted um, uh, the Kentucky Derby, and that the trainer listened to the rider 
And the rider needed to not only listen to the trainer, but listen to the horse as well. And it was kind of this triangle of listening and learning from each other. That is, I think, an understated part of leadership. And you just highlighted it right there. Well, I mean, I, I, I read that and you're right. It's a, it's, I, I, I think you're in general from your reading, your writings, uh, I have gotten the impression that your idea of leadership is uh, is extremely progressive in the in the sense that you have people. The idea of a leader is someone who I think we tend to think, well, the the boss, and the boss knows, and the boss tells you and you do what the boss says you learn from the boss you know there is there is a, that that sort of old fashioned traditional idea of what a leader is when you hit on the idea of a leader listening learning from being open to learn just being open to i mean listening is one thing but being open to change being open to to uh, uh, someone else's ideas who don't who don't have your experience, that's that is it's change and it's positive change in the concept of what a leader is, and I think need I think nerds are great examples of that. That doesn't mean that if you're a nerd, that auto makes you automatically makes you a great leader because. As I think everyone knows, there are people who get to very high positions uh, who are nerds who um, are not necessarily such positive influences. Uh, That's always been true. But uh, if you shoot for that, if you shoot for, for the positive leadership role that involves engaging with people who work for you instead of just telling them what to do, that's fabulous. Yeah, and um, I mean, in some ways, I hate to do this, but you know, let's focus on it because I mean, that's the that's the main thrust of your book, Revenge of the Nerd, in the movie. Um, look, you had you had Gilbert and Lewis who stepped up as these right. two nerd leaders, and you compare that with the jocks with the other fraternity. It was a very hierarchical thing where there was there was somebody at the head and he had his minions do what he wanted them to do mm-hmm. versus this this new upstart of the trilams and they were all kind of seeing themselves as a set of equals and with many different skills that they could rely on to really build something together that not any single one of them could accomplish. Right. That's exactly right. And the I think the idea of the movie, and I, you know, I've got my issues with the movie, but but uh, but the idea of the movie was that the idea it was a very maybe too simple idea of how you show the difference, but it was it came from the right place at the time. They were trying to show, hence the you know adoption of the trilams by a black fraternity as opposed to all of the the white fraternities that they've been applying to where 
where the uh, uh, the jock fraternity was. Um, the idea of working with the sorority sisters from a sorority as opposed to just using them. Um, th that kind of that kind of thing was very deliberate on the part of the writers and the director of Revenge of the Nerds, uh, done in the language of the time uh, uh, with some of the uh, cringy uh, stuff at the time. But the idea being, this is how we accomplish real change is by working together and trying to accomplish things that way. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's amazing to think we're, we are almost 40 years on <laughs> from that project now. Um, talk a little bit about what the environment was like and maybe the mixing and mingling of the, the cast and crew behind the scenes of that film. I don't know. It's I, I this is all changing for me over the years because uh, 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 Ted McGinley, who played the evil, you know, big jock, Stan, uh, right? One, wonderful guy and a very good actor, and and uh, we, but we don't see him that much. We the the nerds, the trilams, the you know those of us who are are uh, around are you know we still see each other socially. We don't see Ted that much. And we were all at a convention once, a whole bunch of us with Ted. It was the only time that we've been at the same convention with Ted. And Ted, we were talking and he said, you guys were so mean to me. And I went, what? <laughs> His recollection was the nerds, the actors who were playing the nerds, uh, we all partied as a group and the alpha betas all partied as a group, but we would have nothing to do with them. It was like, like, uh, uh, Ted and Don Gibb and, and, uh, uh, the rest of them were all sort of, you know, they were, they were partying themselves because they couldn't be with our party because, and we were having all the good, Time, yeah. Well, you guys, you, know? you guys got John Goodman on your, on your side. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm not sure John's that happy with, um, with that, but, um, but yeah, he was, uh, he was definitely partying with the nerds on, on that. And, but it was so funny for Ted to say that because that was his perception at the time that we were, you know, exclusive. It's like going against everything about that movie. It's, a, it's the alpha, the alpha betas are the ones who are supposed to be exclusive, and the trilams are the ones who are on the outside looking in. From the actor's standpoint, it was the other way around. And I just, I apologized profusely. I, I said, I didn't realize we were being mean to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> then I feel guilty for years that we were bad to the alpha betas. Oh, gosh. I hope you weren't carrying that around for too long. No, I got over it. I, I got over it. Um, that, that's fascinating. And, and look, for anybody who wants the full scoop on that, the behind-the-scenes look in those parties and, and how Ted McGinley uh, actually uh, made himself at home as one of the crew or one, one of the uh, nerd crowd, pick up the book. It's, it's certainly worth it. Um, one of the, the other things that you mentioned 
um, in the in the early parts of the book, the early chapters, when you were a kid growing up in Detroit, mm-hmm. is uh, you said more than any single thing, they made me who I am today. Do you remember who they is in that phrase? Let me help you out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, the Beatles, um, good Ed Sullivan, by the way. Um, the, the Beatles were my introduction to the outside world uh, in 64, um, I guess. I would have been seeing them on Ed Sullivan. Um, and I wasn't that different than most people who were, you know, around, you know, 10, 11 at the time. Um, I remember the moment of watching them start singing uh, uh, on the first Ed Sullivan show, which I was seeing under duress. My, I did not want to watch the Beatles. I did not care about the Beatles. My sister, Kristen, who was two years younger, she wanted to see the Beatles. I wanted to see Bonanza or whatever the hell was on it. What a Sing- nerd. I... <laughs> I don't know. I just, that was what I wanted to watch. And, and uh, my parents took the side of my sister and I had to sit there and watch the Beatles and all my loving starts, which is, I think the first song they play and everything changed. And I was looking at all these, you know, the camera would cut away to all of these girls who looked at that age, strangely mature, because I guess they were there without their parents and they were screaming, which showed a degree of communal expression. Um, I wouldn't have put it that way, but now that I look back on it, you know, I, I can see what that, what that was, what that did for them. Uh, and it was doing it for me too. I was sitting there feeling physically my life change by watching the four of them, another community. And if you know their early years in Liverpool, that was what it was. It was the outsiders, the weirdos who loved blues or loved, you know, jazz or, you know, and got together in people's basements and played, learned how to play rock and roll music. They were also outsiders. We're always attracted to those people. Now, by that time, of course, internationally famous people but they started in the in literally in the cavern club which was a basement that's astounding i you know when you when you put it that way uh, suddenly it all makes sense yeah it really does and it really does you mentioned this, this is uh and i want to continue talking about the beatles in a moment but um when you you had gone overseas to geneva uh, mm-hmm. Your dad was in the auto industry. He was transferred over to Switzerland for three years. You came back to Detroit. Right. And you were at, uh, I think it was Anderson Junior High School. That's right. And it was a table of misfits, shall we say. Uh, and you, you said, like any oppressed minority, they learned the value of keeping your head down and not drawing attention to yourself when outnumbered in occupied territory. <laughs> and... 
Which, uh, that's a beautifully constructed sentence, but just the, the concept there of nerds being an outnumbered minority, it really got me thinking that um, it, it, a couple things. One, I think when we are more vulnerable and admit, you know, our, our, our desires, our hobbies, you know, the things that move us, we find that there are probably more people out there than we realize who share in some of these interests. And number two, um, it, while it's comfortable to keep your head down, to say nothing, there are moments when it behooves us to speak up, to fight the power, to offer resistance, to perhaps defend another member of the oppressed minority whom you think is being mistreated. I think there's some leadership power in, in nerddom on that side, too. Yes, I think I think there is, and uh, there were certainly cases, you know. It, I mean, to to refer to us as being, in in that case, in Anderson Junior High School, as an oppressed minority isn't exactly uh, the case. Certainly, I wouldn't compare us to actual. I mean, we were still middle class, upper middle class white people, in uh, in a in a good public school, getting an education, and in my case, having a leader, uh, one of the teachers at that school, show me where my future was. That's, you know, a pretty great advantage to have going into it. But when I talk about us keeping our heads down and not saying anything, uh, that didn't mean that we didn't occasionally reach the point where we had to stand up and we had to defend ourselves uh, or express ourselves. And we did, you know, when we needed to, I mean, when we reached that point. Um, and we were sort of looking out for each other as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that is a, a quality of leadership. We would not have thought of it that way. It's easier to think of it that way in retrospect. Did you ever, in, in a moment like that, when somebody does speak up, when it's a, when it's a vulnerable moment, um, did you ever see, uh, I mean, it would probably almost be like that final uh, monologue in Revenge of the Nerds where everybody comes out of the stands and joins Gilbert yeah. in the center. Of that. Did you? And I'm not yeah. suggesting anything that dramatic, but did you see an instance like that where suddenly people were more willing to stand up for themselves or, um, you know, take a certain position? Yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, this is in 1967, right? Say 67, 68, around there. And, you know, to to a great extent, what was going on in the outside world, I was aware of. We came back, my sister and I came back, my parents were still overseas. My sister and I came back in the summer of 1967 in Detroit. You get you got a, an indication of what was going on, a, a shock with the uprising in Detroit that summer and realizing that this was, you know, I, uh, we were staying in West Detroit at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had gone from Geneva, Switzerland, you know, to, to seeing a city that we sort of knew in utter transition and, uh, you know, as children didn't know even how to grasp the extent of the damage that had been done to lead to this point. And it was a great 
moment of education for us, again, as outsiders, you know, in my school, I was, yes, I was a white boy who had been born in Detroit, but I was also somebody who had been living in Switzerland, which people couldn't even come close to grasping why anyone would live in Switzerland. You know, it, it was just, it's too weird for the northern suburbs of Detroit at the time to comprehend. Um, you know, if I'd said France or England, they would have understood maybe. But um, so I, I think that we we didn't do a lot of standing up for political standpoint, uh, political beliefs, because I'm not sure we had any political beliefs, not at that point. Um, but we stood up for each other by being there for each other. And uh, we did have teachers at that school who were important in, in sort of giving us a better perspective on, on possibilities in, in the outside world. Um, so that was important. Yeah. Yeah. That, that notion of, of solidarity of, of, you know, people working together for a, uh, a common goal. Um, in, in your career, I mean, you've worked with directors and producers and agents and executives and all kinds of actors. Is there a leadership style that has stood out to you, good or bad, things that you've observed in other leaders in your industry that are worth noting? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll give you a great example of this, just that people might be able to relate to. Um, Savage Steve Holland who uh, I first encountered in 1984, right after, same year as Revenge of the Nerds, and um, totally different movie, Better Off Dead. He wrote and directed it. Uh, he was 24. I had never heard of Savage Steve Holland. I was, I was uh, on my third movie when I got the offer, the movie right after Revenge of the Nerds, I got the offer to do this part with John Cusack in Better Off Dead, written and directed by this guy who was actually named Savage Steve Holland, which I couldn't grasp. And uh, so we started working on that film. And this is the guy who, I mean, he's got a big deal now and, you know, with the studio and he's, he's you know, got another film in the pipeline that's going to be coming up. He's young, but he knows what he wants. Well, what it turns out what he wants is what we have to offer. He was not protective of every word, you know, that he wrote in the script. As far as he was concerned, he hired people that he thought were funny, accomplished people whose work he knew from various, various different things. Amanda Wiss, Diane Franklin, you know, all of these people, John Cusack, me, people that, you know, he knew me from Risky Business and Revenge of the Nerds. And the character that he wrote was sort of an amalgam of the characters I'd played in those two movies. Because he, that was why he wanted me in the movie. I had been the second banana in two movies that he really liked. Not, you know, he could have gotten anybody, but he got me because he wanted me for that reason. And, but once we got onto the set... It was so relaxed and so much fun, and he was so engaging in how he talked to people. 
He didn't come off as the big director. He came off as somebody who was looking for ideas. And we would do it, and he'd, he'd go, what do you think about that? Does that work for you? And we'd go, yeah, what do you think? And then it would become, you know, almost improving, but but not not exactly improving. It wasn't, you didn't have that weight on you. It was different. It was just, he knew people could do their jobs. That's why they were there. And he was willing to give up everything that he had done to make to write this script and get this directing job if it meant that we could give him something that he thought was funnier. And if you listen to Savage today, he will tell you that the actors in that movie were all the ones who were responsible for its success, not him. The script was not good, and he was an inept first-time director. He goes, he, he has done himself a world of damage, giving us the credit for making something work. And we certainly contributed, but we couldn't have done that without that kind of leadership. That's the kind of, where you make an environment that is friendly to, to collaboration, to you know, con- contributing to the, to the bigger picture. When you make that possible, when you make that kind of a friendly, open, welcoming environment where people don't have to be worried about making suggestions uh, if, and being able to know when not to do things if it goes too far, that's real leadership in a movie situation. And I'm telling you, Scott, I've worked with a lot of directors and there aren't many of them who who, you know, there are a lot of them who had been in the business a lot longer than Savage didn't, didn't have it. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, the ultimate levels of trust mm-hmm. of, of leadership, humility, uh, as you say, collaboration. I mean, all of this stuff works together. Well, it was like, he was saying, you know, from his perspective and I interviewed Savage for the book, I interviewed a lot of people that I worked with from, especially from those days um, uh, for the book, because I wanted to get his perspective. I didn't want it to just be my memoir of you'll get enough of me, but you, you, I also wanted to get other people involved. So risky business, nerds, better off dead, one crazy summer, moonlighting, all of those. I went to producers, I went to the directors, I went to the writers, I went to the other actors so that I could get other people involved in telling the story. And, you know, I have all of these, you know, these recordings are all now at Oakland University in, in, uh, in uh, Detroit, uh, the, 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 where all of my uh, archive is. It includes all of the recordings I did with all of these people usually like on a cassette tape player in a bar somewhere, but I got my interviews and, and that was what he talks about. Savage talks about all the time, the importance of, of knowing who you're involving and then letting them do their job. And if it means what you set out to do changes, be open to the change. I love that. I love it. Well, um, as you think about 
the the roles that you've played is there one that you identify more with or that's closest to you as a person over over the years uh my feeling about it has always been no um I don't feel that I've ever done a part that feels like me, but I am the sort of actor who tends to bring me into a lot of what I do. So there are, uh, I don't think I ever disappear when it comes to doing parts in uh, doing acting roles, uh, which a lot of actors do, you know, they just sort of vanish. Uh, and you see something totally different. There's always a quality of me in whatever whatever the part is. Interestingly enough, turning that around, the character probably of all that I've ever done that I have least connection to would be Booger <laughs> from Revenge of the Nerds. And actually, you know, now over the years that I've had some distance, I look back on it and think it's actually a pretty good job of acting. Because <laughs> when I look at it now, I go, I don't even see the scene between me and that character. It is complete character uh, of somebody who has nothing to do with me at all. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I wondered if you would read us a little bit of an excerpt from the uh, from the book. Uh, the section, uh, I, th I think it's the last chapter, called After Nerd. All of these hobbies, pastimes, or avocations, we call them passions or obsessions now, were tolerated by others as long as they remained the province of childhood, as long as they were things we grew out of. These days, one of the ways we identify as nerds is by accepting a higher truth that we don't have to grow out of these things as we grow older. It may be Nancy Drew or Sherlock Holmes, Batman or Pokemon, the Twilight Zone or the Twilight movies. When we bring them along with us on our path, it only enhances the journey. One of the true signs of maturity is realizing that not gracefully surrendering the things of youth actually make us better grown-ups. If more people embraced their inner nerd, the better off everyone would be. Well, and we are the better off for embracing you being with us for these past moments. Curtis Armstrong, author of Revenge of the Nerd or The Singular Adventures of the Man Who Would Be Booger, actor, Sherlockian, Woodhouseian, and my friend, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. It was really fun. There's a little nerd in each of us. When we embrace that and find others that share our nerdiness, we become part of a community. And every community needs leaders. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader. <laughs>